we get it. Making new relationships and strengthening existing ones is not always easy. Sometimes we wonder if we are establishing good friendships in our lives, or even if we're a friend others would want to have in their life. We long for people with which we can share the moments of joy, spend our day with, confide in. We crave authenticity and depth with one another. But how do we even get there? The good news is, the Bible has answers for improving our relationships and being the kind of friend others deserve. We need this because we're better together. Good morning, and let me just say welcome again to Sugar Creek, and we're so excited and glad that you are here with us today. Let me just say the obvious, I'm not Pastor Mark. Uh, I'm filling in for Pastor Mark today, who's actually feeling ill. Uh, he started feeling bad earlier this week, and then on Friday, he did test positive for COVID. Um, so we are praying for him, he's doing well. In fact, we were chatting uh, and texting last night. Um, he's not on vacation celebrating the Oklahoma win. Um, we were uh, talking about that yesterday. I'm still licking my chops, but uh, he's in great spirits about the win. So. We wanna be praying for him as he recovers. He's getting great care and great treatment. Um, and I wanna invite you to join with me now as we just pause and pray for our pastor. Will you join with me? Lord, we thank you so much for Pastor Mark and who he is in our lives. We thank you for his leadership, for his wisdom, for his grace, and for his mentoring. God, we just ask right now that you would bring complete and total healing and restoration to his body. Strengthen him, Lord, bring him back to us quickly, God. And Lord, we remember as your word says that it's by your stripes that we are healed. And we just claim that promise for Pastor Mark today and ask that your healing hand would be on his life and his body, Lord, and completely remove any trace of this virus. And it's in your son's precious name that we pray, amen. Amen. Well, thank you. And I just invite you to continue to pray for Pastor Mark as he recovers. We're going to be continuing the series that we've been in for the last several weeks on the topic of friends and how we build friends and the importance of friends in our lives and the importance of close, deep relationships and how God uses them in our lives. And today I want to specifically talk about why it is that sometimes we lose friends. We're in trouble in our nation today. I don't know if you saw this or not, but this past June, USA Today published an article entitled, Why Are We Losing Friends? The Pandemic Isn't Fully at Fault. And in this article, the author compares two different studies that were done on the United States general population and our interaction with friends. The first study that it looked at was actually done by Gallup almost 30 years ago. And nearly 30 years ago, the Gallup poll showed that, the, uh, that 50% of the American population said they had six or more close friends outside of their family. In fact, in that study, not only did 50% say they've got six or more, but there was almost 30% that said they had 10 or more close friends outside of their family. But 
the article went on to compare that with a more recent study that was done just this year that showed that the, almost the same amount, 49% of Americans say that they have three or fewer close friends outside of their family. So in 30 years, we've gone from half of us saying we've got six or more to half of us saying we have three or fewer close friends outside of our family. And we can probably all agree with that statement that right now we can think of individuals in our life that were once considered close friends, loved ones, or maybe even family members that no longer fit that category today. And we wanna look at this problem. We wanna look at today what the Bible has to say to us about keeping friends. And specifically, the Bible helps us understand what are the three most powerful enemies of friendship. And that's what we're going to look at today. And the first enemy of friendship will be no surprise to you. It's simply this, selfishness. Selfishness breaks relationships by making it only about us. Selfishness breaks relationships by making it only about us. Selfishness causes us to say either in our heart or maybe even out loud, I want what I want and I want it now. I don't care what you want. I only care about what I want. And I know none of you in here would be so rude or bold to actually say those words out loud to a human being. But you know who would? Our kids, right? How many of you have gone through the process of raising, raising children and one of the first things that you had to teach them was how to share their toys, right? Now, I, I need to give you a couple ground rules for this morning. Number one, you're allowed to say amen or raise your hand. And if you're online, you're allowed to click like or say something in the, in the chat to let us know that you're learning something. We've all been through this process of trying to detrain selfishness out of the hearts of our children. And as we grow up, we like to think that that selfishness has gone away and that we've detrained it, but it still lives there, right? It just goes dormant at times. And as we grow up, as we're young adults and adults, there's still times in our lives where selfishness rears its ugly head and hurts and breaks our relationships. Look at what James says about this in James chapter four, verses one and two. James asks this question, what causes fights and quarrels? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. Did you see what James is saying here? He's basically telling us to recognize the battle that is being waged in your heart. See, all of us are in this boat. We have selfish, sinful desires that wage battle with righteous, good desires in our heart. And when the selfish desires win out in that battle, James is telling us that that's what causes conflict, fights, and quarrels with other people and that selfishness is beginning to break down those close friendships. The reality is though that relationships don't start this way. You never begin a relationship from a selfish standpoint, right? We always put our best foot forward. We're always on our best behavior when we first begin relationships. Think about the last job interview that you had. 
or the last time you had a first day on the job, or maybe you moved into a new home and you meet your neighbors for the very first time, or maybe even better yet, think about a first date. When you're on your first date, you put your best foot forward, don't you? I did. I remember back to the first date that my wife Megan and I had. And uh, we were living in separate cities. I was in East Texas and she was in Oklahoma. And we had to meet in Dallas for our dates. And she would stay with a friend and I would stay with family. And so the first date that we had, I drove to her friend's apartment to pick her up. And I go to the door and knock on the door and she comes and we walk down the stairs and we go to my truck. And I do what every good gentleman does on a first date, right? You open the door for the girl. And guys, even after you're married, continue to open the door for your wife. All right, that's free. Um, and so I opened the door to my truck for my wife. Now, back then I was driving a 1998 green S10 pickup and it had a green camper on the back. And one of my good friends called it the green bean because it looked like a green bean on wheels. And so I bring her down and I open the door to my truck and she gets in and years later, Megan told me that the first thought that went through her mind was, wow, this guy's truck does not look and smell like the average single guy's truck. It doesn't smell bad, it's not messy, there's not trash everywhere. And what she didn't know was that I had my truck detailed three hours earlier that day. Because I'm no fool. Like I knew this girl is out of my league. I've got to put my best foot forward. I had to be on my best behavior. And you know what, she was doing the exact same thing. She was on her best behavior. She was putting her best foot forward with me. And we do this with all of the friendships and the relationships that we have in life, right? But what happens is that over time, our best behavior begins to slip a little bit and we get really, really comfortable with our loved ones. And what happens is these new relationships go from being what I call a performance-based relationship to eventually they become an acceptance-based relationship. And when we are in these acceptance-based relationships where we know this is a safe place, this person loves me and accepts me, it's a safe place for maybe the real me to come out more often. And that sometimes includes my selfish desires and wants and wishes. And so what we need to do is we need to be incredibly careful to make sure that our comfort level with our loved ones doesn't create an opportunity for our selfishness to grow and take up residence. And so we've gotta be careful that this uh, selfishness doesn't cause trouble. Proverbs 28, 25 tells us and warns us, selfishness only causes trouble. Now, if selfishness destroys a relationship, then selflessness is the cure. It's the antidote. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter two, which is one of my favorite passages in scripture. Philippians two verse four says this, look out for one's interest, not just your own. And he goes on in this section to talk about how Jesus did this for us. And what he's doing is he's helping us understand that Jesus is the model. Jesus is the example for what it looks like to let selflessness help us heal our relationships and help us grow and deepen our relationships. See, Jesus knew that our selfishness is what caused us to run away from God. 
And so Jesus in his selflessness and in his humility went to the cross so that he could forgive us. And Jesus provides for us the perfect model and the perfect example for what it looks like to fight this battle of selfishness, destroying our friendships and our relationships with our loved ones. Paul basically is telling us that selflessness transforms relationships. Selflessness transforms a relationship. Years ago, I got to meet a man by the name of Joe Ehrman. Some of you may recognize that name. He's a former NFL player, played for the Baltimore Colts. And back when they had a group of guys on their defense that were called the Sack Pack. And they were terrors on the field. And maybe some of you enjoyed watching him back in the day. Well, he's retired now and he's leading a great nonprofit ministry. And I got to meet him a couple years ago. And he said this, he said, you have to decide if you want to build transactional relationships or transformational relationships. You have to decide if you're gonna build transactional relationships or transformational relationships. See, transactional ones are ones where we're letting our selfish wants and wills and, and desires lead that relationship. And it's all about what we get out of it for ourselves. It's a transaction. But a transformational relationship is where we let our selflessness drive that relationship and be focused on what can I do for you? How can God use me to bring transformation into your life? Or better yet, how can we work together to be better together? And what could God accomplish in this world through us being united? That's what a transformational relationship looks like. And you have to decide what it is that you want transactional relationships or transformational relationships. This is basic sowing and reaping. I love how Paul talks about sowing and reaping in Galatians. And the message translation gives us a great understanding of this topic. And the message is not a word for word translation. It's actually a paraphrase, but it does a great job here in Galatians 6 of helping us understand the concept of sowing and reaping and how it affects our relationships. Read this with me. Galatians chapter six, starting at verse seven, the message says this, don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. And the person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others and ignoring God, he harvests a crop of weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. You will reap out of your relationships what you sow into your relationships. When we sow selfishness, we reap it back. When we sow and build transactional relationships, that's what we get back. And we have to be focused and intentional about what we are sowing into our relationships. Sowing selflessness never happens on accident. It only happens with intentionality. So we have to be intentional about serving those that we love. Now. If selflessness is what breaks relationships, if selflessness is the first enemy, then the second enemy is pride because pride keeps broken relationships broken. Pride works to keep 
Broken relationships, broken. Philippians chapter two, the verse that we read just a minute ago, if you go a verse earlier to verse three, it says this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And that word conceit is talking about pride. Do, do nothing out of selfishness or empty pride. I love this definition of pride. It's this, pride is the act of showing oneself to be above another and becoming inflated with oneself and their own opinion. When I read that definition of pride, what comes to my mind is a puffer fish. Have you ever seen a puffer fish or know what these things are? I think we have a picture of one. We'll put it up on the screen. A puffer fish has the ability, this is what it looks like, and it kind of swims around. It looks all kind of cute, but when it senses an enemy, it has the ability to inflate itself by sucking in water, making it look much larger than it actually is and actually looking dangerous. And if I was a bad fish swimming around looking for something to eat, I would not want to eat this guy. But there's actually a second defense mechanism that a puffer fish has. Not only does it inflate, inflate itself to look more dangerous, but it's actually filled with poison. And if a fish comes and tries to eat a puffer fish, it will die almost instantly. In fact, a puffer fish has so much poison inside of it that it's enough to kill 30 grown adults. And there's no known antidote for the poison that's inside the puffer fish. This is a amazing reminder of what pride looks like is that we puff ourselves up and we become proud and, and we dig our heels in with our opinions and our desires and our wants. And we say that I should be able to get what I want because I'm better or my opinion is better than this other person. Mark Twain said it this way. He said, temper gets us into trouble, but pride keeps us there. Did you know that there's actually over 150 verses in the Bible that talk about pride? Let's look at a couple of them. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, pride will destroy a person, a, pri a proud attitude leads to ruin. Proverbs 11:2 says this, pride leads to disgrace, but the humility, but with humility comes wisdom. And Proverbs 18:12 says this, before his downfall, before his downhaul, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Now, I wanna give you a few questions to ask yourself this morning. You can jot these down in your notes. You can write them down if you're watching at home online. I wanna give you a few questions that you can ask yourself to help you know if pride is beginning to grow in your heart and in a relationship. Number one, do I have trouble saying, I'm sorry. If you have trouble saying, I'm sorry, there's a chance that pride is growing in your heart or in that relationship. Number two, do you have trouble admitting you were wrong? Sometimes we can say, I'm sorry, but it's really, really, really painful to say I was wrong, right? That is one of my least favorite things to have to admit, especially to my kids. If that's a constant theme, there's a chance that there could be some pride growing. Number three, here's another question. Can you have a debate with someone without it turning into an argument? Now you may be saying, isn't that what a debate is? Isn't a debate an argument? No, it's not. A debate is a respectable, healthy conversation with another person 
comparing your different opinions with one another. That's what a debate is. But too often we let the debate turn into an argument and we're just arguing over two different opinions. My wife and I have a saying in our marriage that we use when we begin to sense this crop up. And it, we, we say this to one another, you're entitled to your wrong opinion. We think that we should put it on a coffee mug and sell it, I think we'd make a killing. You're entitled to your wrong opinion. We say this to one another as a way to just disarm the fact that we're getting close to arguing over just a difference of opinion and that it's okay to think differently than another human being. We don't have to all think the same way. Our world is in desperate need of the church modeling this for others, that unity doesn't come from uniformity. Unity comes from diversity. And when we are unified, knowing that we are respectful and loving one another, even in our difference of opinion, God can use us to impact change in this world. And so we need to make sure that our pride is not keeping us from having those type of healthy conversations. Here's one last question for you to consider. This will help you see if there's maybe pride growing in your life. Do I have the ability to compromise with others? Do I have the ability to compromise with others? I love how the country band Diamond Rio says this. They sing a song where there's a line that says, I'll start walking your way and you start walking mine and we'll meet in the middle underneath the old Georgia pines. It's a song about a couple that when they were young, they would meet in the woods between their two houses. But as they got old and they fell in love and they got married, they realized there's still times that we need to meet in the middle. And if we have pride growing in our heart and in that relationship, it makes it impossible for us to meet in the middle. So what does God have to say about this, about when pride is growing in our hearts? James chapter four, verse six says this, but God gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud. Now stop right there and think about that, that God opposes the proud, the creator of the universe, who's strong enough and powerful enough to breathe out stars, opposes the proud. I do not want God opposing me. What does it mean for God to oppose the proud? Here's what it means. It reduces his blessings in our life. He reduces his guidance and his strengthening until our pride has been changed. He removes his hand of protection and his hand of provision. That's what it means for God to oppose us and God opposes the proud. But if you go on, he gives us the cure to this pride. And the verse continues and it says, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility is the antidote to pride. Years ago, I worked at Pine Cove Christian Camps and my boss was a man by the name of Craig Langemeyer. And there was a time when Craig was uh, doing what he did a lot of times, which was passing on some very godly wisdom to a group of us. And in this conversation, Craig said something that I've nev never forgotten. He said, the most attractive character trait that any human being can have is humility. The most attractive character trait that any human being can have is humility. 
Listen to what Peter says about humility. In 1 Peter chapter three, he lists it along with some other recommended behaviors. He says this, live in harmony, be sympathetic, love each other, have compassion and be humble. I don't think that you can do any of those things if you're not first humble. They all overflow out of a posture of humility. Think about that very first command there, live in harmony. How can you live in harmony if you're not first having a posture of humility? Harmony, it's a musical term. And you can't just pick any two notes out and play them at the same time and expect it to sound good. You, you actually have to take two, harmony is the combination of two or more complementary notes played at the same time. And if you're not careful, you can create dissonance instead of harmony. Or think about an orchestra that knows for this song to sound the right way, we have to all choose to humbly play our part and follow the sheet music and the conductor's instructions. And if we don't, if any one of us chooses, I wanna play my own sheet music, or even though it says to play an A flat right here, A sharp is my favorite note, and so that's what I'm gonna play. That's not gonna sound right. We have to trust the conductor. We have to trust that God is leading us and helping us be humble with one another so that we can live in harmony. There's one other thing that we need to notice from that James passage about humility. Read this again with me in James chapter four, verse six. But God gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives, here's the key word, grace to the humble. So humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, you, you're gonna find that the grace and the power of God, if you want God's grace and God's power alive and evident in your relationships, you have to first recognize the grace that God is giving you and be willing to pass that on to others. That that's a lot of what humility looks like, is recognizing what God's grace is doing in you and pass that on to the others that you're at odds with. Gentleness comes when humility when, when in humility, we recognize God's grace in our lives and we decide to give it to others as he gave it to us. Now, if selfishness is the first enemy that breaks relationships and pride is the second enemy that keeps them broken, then the third enemy is resentment. And resentment sabotages any attempt to fix broken relationships. You may be sitting here and saying, okay, I recognize that there's selfishness and some pride that has broken some of my past or existing relationships. We need to understand that it's actually resentment that will constantly be working against you in any effort you make to try to repair those broken relationships. Now, when somebody behaves selfishly and with pride in your life, and they, maybe it's that they just don't meet your expectations or maybe they actually do something that's hurtful to you. These broken relationships create deep wounds in our life. 
And the Bible cares a lot. God cares a lot about giving us instruction about how to handle these deep wounds. There's right ways to take care of these wounds and there's wrong ways to take care of these relationship wounds in our life. And letting them grow and fester is the wrong way to deal with these wounds. Look at what the Bible says about this idea of resentment and letting these wounds fester. Job chapter five says this, to worry yourself to death with resentment is a foolish, senseless thing to do. Resentment is the behavior of fools, is basically what the Bible is saying. Psalm 73 says this, since my heart was embittered and my soul deeply wounded, I was stupid and could not understand. The psalmist is saying that I was in such resentment that it kept me from being able to think clearly. Have you ever been there before? Were you in such deep anger and deep relational wounds that you couldn't even think straight? That's what this verse is talking about. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, look after each other so that no one of you will fail to find God's blessings. Watch out that no bitterness takes root among you for as it springs up, it causes deep trouble, hurting many in their spiritual lives. Now it's okay to be angry. When this wound happens, it's going to create anger. And the Bible tells us that it's okay to be angry. In Psalm chapter four, David talks about that it, in your anger, do not sin, that it's possible to be angry and it not lead to sin. Paul later in Ephesians chapter four, he quotes David and he says it again for emphasis. In your anger, do not sin. You can't live life, you can't breathe oxygen and not have experiences that lead to anger, right? You can't drive through Houston without having an experience that sometimes leads to anger. You, you could lock yourself in a closet for years to try to avoid other people and you're still gonna be experiencing anger because you're gonna be mad that people didn't come to visit you. You can't live life with it not creating opportunities for anger and for wounds to happen in your heart. But the key is to make sure that we deal with these wounds correctly. When we let resentment grow and we let these wounds fester and we let this anger sit and lead to sin, we end up doing what we all know, we hold a grudge. Do you know what a grudge is? A grudge is a cancerous form of hope. It's holding on to hope that one day I'll be proven right. See, when that person hurts you, or wounds you, or that person does something to you. Most often what we do is we do the Christian thing or we do the mature thing and we put on a face that, oh, that person didn't hurt me that much and, I, and I've let it go. But inside we stew and inside we ponder and we think and we rehearse what we wish we would have said or we rehearse what we should have done or we just wait for the right time to be able to get them back. We're holding on to hope that we'll have the opportunity to be proven that we were right and that other person was wrong. And that's what resentment does, is it lets a cancerous form of hope grow in our hearts. 
Let me ask you this question. Is there somebody right now that you're thinking of in your mind that you're waiting for the opportunity for people to see that they wronged you? Is there somebody that you're thinking of in your mind that you are waiting for the day that other people see that they were the villain and that you weren't? If you're holding out for hope that you're proven right, you're holding a grudge and you're not allowing God to deal with the anger and the wound that's in your heart. And it's only hurting you, it's not hurting the other person. So what is the antidote to this? The antidote to resentment is forgiveness. The cure for resentment is forgiveness. Colossians chapter three says this, you must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I'll never forget the day that this verse became real to me and that I learned what it really meant. I was a young adult and I was hanging out with my dad, sharing some frustrations with him about a few individuals that were not meeting my expectations. And I was greatly disappointed in them. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Ben, the closer you get to people, the more you see their sin and the more they see yours. So if you wanna keep long-term deep friendships, you have to learn how to be highly skilled at forgiveness and highly skilled at asking for forgiveness. The closer we get to each other, the more we're gonna see each other's sin. And that's what this verse is saying, that we have to make allowance for that. We have to make allowance for one another's faults and be quick and highly skilled to forgive. This word forgive in Colossians comes from the Greek word that literally translated means to give grace. And grace by definition is undeserved. And so we forgive, we give grace before that person has done anything to deserve it. Just like Jesus forgave us before we did anything to deserve it. Romans 5, 8 says it this way, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to apologize. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act and come to him and humble ourselves and then receive forgiveness. No, Jesus knew that our selfishness and our pride is what broke our relationship with our heavenly father. And so in his selflessness and in his humility, he put the two cures into practice and he went in obedience to the cross so that we could be reconciled with our heavenly father before we ever deserved it. And that's what forgiveness looks like is to give that person grace before they've ever done anything to deserve their forgiveness. I wanna share a story with you about a lady named Eva Kor and her sister Miriam. Eva and Miriam were two Jewish sisters that were in German concentration camps during World War II. And they saw and experienced atrocities that we can't even imagine. And it's amazing that Eva survived, but unfortunately her sister Miriam didn't and she died in the concentration camp. And on the 50th anniversary of the end of the war, Eva decided that she was gonna go back to that concentration camp 
And when she was there, she also had the opportunity to connect with and see again a man by the name of Dr. Hans Munch. Now, Dr. Hans Munch was there at the concentration camp 50 years earlier as a part of the staff that ran it. And he was the one that signed the death certificates of all of the Jewish individuals that died there in the concentration camp. And he was there with Eva 50 years later. And he gave Eva a document that he signed that wrote out all of the different atrocities and things that were done to her and her sister while they were there as a way to give her proof and evidence that we did these things to you. Now in turn, Eva then gave Dr. Hans Munch a document as well. She wrote out a document and signed it stating that she forgave him. And when she gave it to him and signed it in his presence, it did an amazing thing in her heart and it released her from this weight and pain that she had been living with for so long. And in fact, a few weeks before she passed away, somebody interviewed her and she said this, if I had discovered forgiveness sooner, I would have had that 50 years of my life back. Forgive and see the miracle that can happen. Now, here's what I wanna say. The greatest broken relationship in your life was the broken relationship between you and your heavenly father. And I wanna remind you that today can be the day that you accept Jesus' forgiveness for your sin. Today can be the day that you say, Lord, I'm going to stop letting my selfishness and my pride keep you at a distance. And I'm gonna accept the free forgiveness of your son and let you reconcile that relationship with me. Today is the day that you can do that. Today is also the day that you can take the first step towards reconciling perhaps an earthly relationship that's broken as well. The day that you can say, I'm gonna humble myself and I'm gonna stop letting pride and selfishness get in the way of hurting these friendships. And maybe today's the day that you need to take the first step towards forgiveness. Now, forgiveness always starts with the first step of just saying it out loud, I forgive you. But sometimes these wounds are so deep that it takes more than one time. Sometimes it's a daily reminder to yourself in the mirror, I'm going to forgive this person. I choose today to not retaliate against them. I choose today to seek their good. I choose today to ask God to bless them. That's what it looks like to give grace, to forgive them even on a daily basis. And I gotta tell you, if it were not for Jesus and the Holy Spirit in my heart, giving me the power to do that, I wouldn't be able to do it. And it's the same for you. We have to have the power of God alive and well in our hearts to give us the ability to forgive others in this way. Let's pray. Jesus, right now we just come to you and we ask that you would in fact give us the ability 
to forgive others as you have forgiven us. And Lord, if there's anyone here today in this room or watching online that would say, I have never yet accepted Christ's forgiveness for me and the greatest broken relationship in my life is still broken between me and my heavenly father. Let today be the day of salvation for them. Let today be the day that they step forward in humility and say, I need Jesus. And Lord, let today be the day for so many of us to take that first step of offering grace and forgiveness to those that have hurt and wounded us. Let today be the day that so many of us take that first step and ask for forgiveness where it is needed. God, give us the ability, give us the courage to take these steps. And it's in your son's name that we pray, amen.